Lord, thank you for the privilege of gathering around your word. And we pray that you would be our guide, your Holy Spirit, our teacher. Lord, please help us to behold more of you, that we would walk in obedience and faithfulness to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are new, we have these, I put some notes together that are in the chairs uh, and the seats around you. And y'all know, I do this from time to time. Uh, If you're new, you should know we normally are are kind of camped out in a passage, maybe two. As we continue in this series, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And I wanted to make sure that you had the references in your hand. Some of y'all who brought your Bible or have one by you will certainly wanting to be open up to each of these. Others of you, um, it's of course fine if you just want to listen. Do whatever works best for you. I want to say then that as we get going, we're in the second part of a series that we started last week called The Mission of God. And we've really started this series by thinking about some of the bigger questions that any of us can ask. Is there a purpose to life? Is there meaning in life? Is there any purpose to history? We saw last week, for those of you that were with us, um, particularly when we were looking at a quote, some of y'all remember from Richard Dawkins, that if there is no God, if this is all there is, then we do have to come to the conclusion that there is no sense of objective and um, objective purpose and meaning to the world and to history. That's just the way things are. On the other hand, we saw Christianity is coming at this question with a very different set of assumptions, including the most important one being that God is real. And because we know that he's real, there is a sense of purpose to history and to the world. And we saw that a huge part of that, one of the ways that we can characterize his purpose in the world goes back to a conversation that he has long, long ago with Abraham. And that one of the ways that we can characterize what God's doing over the course of history has to do with this plan for the nations that he has. So he's at work in the world through time, reaching out to boys and girls, men and women from all, as it says, nations, tribes, and tongues, that they might be uh, reconciled unto him, to have a restored relationship with him, to put their faith in him, that we might be able to enjoy him and worship him forever. That's what we mean when we're talking about in this series the mission of God. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we were focused on these first several verses from Genesis 12, and we saw, again, God coming to this random man in ancient Mesopotamia, to to Abraham, or at the time, Abram. And remember what he said to him in those first couple verses. In verse three, he looked at him and said, Abram, in you, all the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed. In you, all of them. And we we looked at the way that that's repeated to the patriarchs in Genesis. And then what we did is, do you remember, we skipped ahead and and we went to Jesus and we just remembered very briefly the fact that he's reminding us about the nations and the call for all followers of Jesus, all disciples to be a part of this role as he's calling us to go out and make disciples of all nations. Now, you might have been wondering, what happens with this nation's plot line in the Old Testament between these two parts, between what we read about in Genesis, okay, and then where it gets picked up, it seems like, or I should say where Jesus speaks to it. Is it, in fact, getting picked up? Maybe that's another another way of putting it. And I wanted to ask, is this like, for example, have have y'all ever been in a situation, this was the case for us in the last um, couple of years of moving here, where there's a house or some sort of a property that's near where you live. You pass it every day. 
when you're driving to work or when you're dropping your kids off or, or whatever you're doing, going to the grocery store. And there used to be something there. Maybe there was another house. They bulldozed that. They started getting to work on a new house. They laid some foundation. You, you see that the concrete's been there. And then at one point, um, no one shows up anymore. And it goes a week and no one's there. And then it goes three months and no one's there. And then it's six months. And, and you and your, um, your neighbors are kind of looking at each other and, and you're maybe asking when you bump into each other, hey, do you know what's going on with the house? Like, did the contractor go out of business? Is, is this in the middle of a lawsuit? What's going on with this? Why, why did it just seem to just drop off? Is that the case with what's going on with this plan for the nations in the Old Testament? Is it that somehow... After Genesis, God just forgets about what he's doing with the nations. And then as he sends forth his son, Jesus, into the world, he remembers what he was supposed to do. And then he nudges Jesus to somehow get involved, to pick up the pace. Is that what's going on? Obviously, that's not what's going on. On one hand, as the Old Testament continues, God is at work in a specific nation, in a unique way. That's obviously the nation of Israel. But we know even while he's at work in one nation, he's still on this mission to reach nations way, way beyond them. That's what's going on. And we're going to see, we're reading about that with the people of God in their songs. Okay, we're going to read about it in what their prophets say. God's plan to reach the nations. If if you could describe the Bible, every book as as one song of redemptive history, this note, I'm, so, I'm sorry, this plot about the nations is a note that is being held throughout the entire song. It's always there. And that, that's why we said last week, the Old Testament matters to us as Christians. We saw that Christianity is all about Jesus. It didn't start with Jesus, at least with his earthly life. Okay, it goes way, way further back. And so we're going to think more about this plot line with the nations today in the Old Testament as we do look at these two specific reminders where we read about it. First, in the songs of God's people, in Israel's songs, and then second, in some of their prophets. The songs and the prophets. Let's begin first with the songs, okay? And we're specifically, obviously, thinking about the Psalms. If you have that sheet that was in your seats, this is going to be really helpful when we start to look at several of these in just a couple minutes. The, the Psalms are often called the, the hymn book of God's people. So the word for that comes from the Greek word psalmos, which is translated from the Hebrew word for songs. Many of these put to music. They're songs, and they're singing about God, obviously, that he is, that he's glorious, that he's worthy of our worship. I mean, they're saying all these different things, and interestingly, one of the things that they happen to sing about is this relationship that God has with the nations, this thing that he's doing with the nations. And when you step back, it's as if he speaks about them kind of in two ways. On one hand, we see this invitation in the Psalms to the nations. We also read about a, a, a declaration about the nations. And so let's look at some of these verses and look at those two. First, let's look at the invitation to the nations, one of the clearest ways that the Psalms write about what God's doing with all peoples, all, all people groups across the world is that there is this plea and this exhortation for people to come 
and to worship the living God. And let me just read a couple of examples of these. These, again, are in your notes. The psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 67, verses 4 through 5. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Psalm 117.1, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Psalm 105.1, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. And then just one more, this is what we looked at about two weeks ago in Psalm 96, verse three, declare his, the Lord's glory, among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. Now, if if we wanted to, we could go into the Psalms together and if we have more time, find way more examples of what this is emphasizing. We don't have to do that because the point's obvious, isn't it? All the nations are being called. The, The Psalms are inviting people saying, hey, get involved, look at God. He is great, let's sing. Let's dance. This is for everybody. Everybody, people from every background are called to be a part of this. So that's part of what we see is this this invitation. And whereas if, if there's this statement about what should be happening in the Psalms with the nations, it goes a step further and it also declares what's gonna happen with the nations. Let me offer just a couple examples of these. So Psalm 86, verse nine. All nations whom you've made shall come and worship you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Psalm 102, 15. The nations shall fear the name of the Lord and the kings of the earth your glory. Or there's Psalm 7, I'm sorry, Psalm 2, 7 through 8, which most of us know is ultimately about Jesus. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You're my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And again, if you're someone that may be wondering, how do we really know that this was being said about Jesus? One, because this this is what Paul refers to, this specific set of verses in Acts 13, 33, when he's in the synagogue in Antioch. We know that Psalm 2, 7 is talking about Jesus. And again and again, what's it saying about him? God's going to make the nations his heritage, the ends of the earth, his possession. So this this isn't a thing where it's a 50-50 chance that it's going to happen or that it's possibly going to happen, okay? This this is something that's going to happen. All the nations are going to come to God. They're going to worship him. They're going to fear his name. They're going to give him glory. God's going to give them as a heritage to his son, to the ends of the earth. So the first thing that we've seen as as we think about this plot line with the people of God is is when you look to a book that was written by the people of God and for the people of God, as they celebrate him and as they celebrate his heart, one of the things that becomes clear is his heart is not just for them. It's for all peoples. And so that's one way that we see this, this plan for the nations continuing through the Old Testament is that there is... Again, if you go to look at the book of Psalms as a song in and of itself, in that song, 
this note about the nations being gathered unto God and enjoying God is being sung about and hit again and again and again. So there are the the things that we see uh, being stated in the songs about him. Now we're going to take just a couple of examples and, and see not just what the songs say, but what the prophets happen to say about this plot line. Remember, the prophets were these leaders that were chosen by God to speak on his behalf. He talks through the prophets, his own people, about all sorts of things, about his judgment, his, his mercy, his glory, his love. And then isn't it funny, one of the things that God seems to commission the prophets to speak about is this work that he's doing in the nations. And there's at least two that we see it with. We could look at more, but the two that we're going to think about just for a second, are Isaiah and Daniel. So for just a second, if you have those notes in front of you, let's think about Isaiah. Isaiah is one of these books where as as a prophet often is doing, he's prophesying or speaking about the present, what God's doing, and what God's gonna do in the future. So for example, he's, he's calling out Israel in the present for her idolatry, her pride, for being willing to trust anyone else but God. I mean, that's, that's going on for them in the here and now. He's also pointing way, way ahead to a future to one who's gonna come and do something incredible among the nations. So listen to the example we have from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Listen carefully to this. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, who's the root of Jesse? We know this is Jesus. Jesse was David's father. Jesus is known as the son of David. He's coming from the line of David. Isaiah is pointing us ahead to Jesus coming as the Messiah. And as the root, the root of Jesse, what does Isaiah say he's gonna do? Verse 10, he'll stand as a signal for the peoples of him the nation shall inquire. Now think about this. This is being written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus has ever come. And even with that being the case, this prophet is pointing again ahead to a time when the Messiah is gonna come. This person's gonna be a signal for not just the Israelites, but for the nations. And so specifically through Jesus, this mission now, this is going beyond Israel. This is going to the Gentiles. This is why Paul quotes this, you should know, and I think I have this in the notes. Paul cites this in Romans 15, 12, when he connects this this verse to Jesus and his own desire in his ministry to now turn and to go to the Gentiles. Again, remember that word in the Greek for Gentiles, the same word that's used for nations. That's, That's one way that we see Isaiah stressing this theme that we're reading about in the Psalms. Here's another way, another place is Isaiah 49. Okay, in verse six, which we've talked about a couple times in the last few weeks. I'm gonna read verse six. Again, God's speaking through Isaiah. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation shall reach to the ends of the earth. Some of y'all that haven't been to an Anglican church before, you were wondering, why did they start the service with, these words about being a light to the nations because we're in this season of, a, of epiphany, 
and what we call our church calendar, and we're remembering this idea that God is going, he's made himself manifest, manifest particularly in the person of Jesus, to the nations. That's, that's why we start our service this way with that verse in mind. Now, again, we know Jesus is being talked about here. That's, that's who this is pointing us ahead to, and how do we know that? Because among other reasons, you go to places in the New Testament, like the passage that we had read for earlier from Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are talking about this, okay? They, they've already quoted earlier in Acts 13, we have this quote that we were just talking about from Psalm 2. And then this is what we read about when they tell the Jews, in the, this is what they read about specifically, why they say that they are thrusting their ministry to them aside, and they're now gonna take a new direction in their ministry, and they're going to the Gentiles. And did you notice what it says after that in verse 48? Let's, I'm sorry, let me go back to 47. They say, for the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So y'all wanna know why we're going to the Gentiles? That's why. That's why. And then what happens? And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, just like in the Psalms, we could spend a lot more time looking in the prophets and thinking about this, especially in Isaiah. But think about it. Here's Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets in all of Israel. Hey, remember that vision of Isaiah's calling and, and Isaiah has this vision of God and here's that question, well, whom shall, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I'm here, send me. God says, okay. Go, speak to the people. And one of the things that apparently he's telling Isaiah to say to the people is God's gonna come one day and do a whole new work to the nations. He's gonna send this one that's gonna be a light for them, a signal to them. Through him, salvation to reach to all the ends of the earth. So here's one example of this nations or a plot line being carried through the prophets. Let me, let me just, for the sake of time, just give one more example, and that's with the prophet Daniel. Again, uh, the verses we're going to be looking at in your notes. Just as a reminder, Daniel's living around the fifth century as an exile in Babylon. He's got this dream that he has at night, this vision. He sees a figure, among others, the Son of Man, which we know, again, is Jesus. If you're wondering, how, how do we know that? Again, you go to the Gospels, places like Mark 14, Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. When he gets into an argument about his identity in verse 62 of that chapter, he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so you go back to Daniel 7, and what do we learn about this Son of Man that's coming? Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, sounds familiar, doesn't it? There came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So again, we know he's talking about Jesus and then look how it continues. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominions and everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one, shall not be destroyed. Now, 
Notice two things in those verses. One, notice what the Son of Man's given. He's given authority, dominion, glory, a kingdom. And why, according to this prophecy, is he given these things? What does it say? That or so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. You know, one of the interesting things is when you see this language for all peoples in this passage is if you look at the, the Greek version of the Old Testament in the Septuagint, the, the phrase that's being used for all peoples here, this is the same language that we get in the Old Testament for all the nations. Pantata ethne. I don't remember much of my Greek, but I wanted you to think I'm smart, so I just thought I'd quote it. Pantata ethne. All the nations, which is, interestingly, it's the same construct that Paul uses. Remember, we were in Galatians 3 last week. It's the same construct that he uses in verse 3.8 when Paul says that the scriptures were preaching the gospel to Abraham, told that all the nations would be blessed in him. Why? Because they would be coming to God in the same way that Abraham was through faith. Can you believe this? They're both pointing in the same direction. Ultimately, um, Jesus saying all, all these people, all the nations will be bowing down before me and, and Daniel anticipating that they will all uh, be subject to him and, and they will serve him. He will be given all glory and dominion. Now, that's a good bit of, of covering some ground in the prophets and the Psalms. Think about what all these are showing us. Um, this is not, again, this storyline about what God's doing in the nations it's not like the construction project that, at least for me, I know, was going around the corner from our house. It's not like that. God didn't forget about it. And God didn't remember it with Jesus. Okay, what he is doing is he is continuing throughout the story of God's people over and over again to remind them. And, and if we had more time, we would even look at different ways that he's incorporating the Gentiles into the people of God. In Jesus' ancestry, as we've talked about that. Even in the Exodus, we've talked about this. There are other people from outside of Israel being incorporated. They're, they're getting out, they're hightailing it with the Israelites out of Egypt. He is at work in the nations. So we see this all through the Testament. What I, the Old Testament, all I want to do is, I want to close by asking this, because I know, I know that there might be some of us here that um, you can appreciate, I, I hope there's clarity about the fact that this is what, the scriptures are claiming and that this is what the Old Testament is pointing us to. I know there are some of us that are like, okay, um, I don't get a clue what that does about everyday life for me as a Christian. What's the big deal about this as a Christian? Here's the big deal. I was thinking about a friend of mine. Um, I had a friend of mine in the last two years tell me that he discovered by doing one of these uh, DNA tests that the man that he had always known as his father is not his father not his biological father. And, and what that did for him is it, it simply forced him to, in some ways, and, and he, he loves his father, and he had a very wonderful man as his father, rethink through, reconceive of his identity, how he understood himself, who he saw when he looked in the mirror. Now, and that's, that, this is a very tenuous analogy. Just bear with me here. When we come to this place, when we understand that by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we are a part of this work in the nations. We're a part, as we talked about last week, 
of, of what God's doing. We're, we're one of the stars that God points out to Abraham. When, when we see that, this forces us to totally rethink who we are. We have to totally rethink what our lives are about. Because isn't, isn't it true? For most of us, even if we were raised in the church, even if we grew up in, in um, Christian families, when we think about what our, our lives ultimately are for and what the purpose of our life is, don't we think that that's something that we really have kind of the freedom to decide? Isn't that almost like what it means to be an American? I was reminded of this. I, I think one of the best ways of summarizing the way that we naturally tend to think about this is from part of, and just bear with me here, it's from, it's a quote from the, the majority opinion of a very significant case that was before the Supreme Court 20 years ago. And listen to this um, statement uh, by Anthony Kennedy, who was, I believe, Chief Justice at the time, about the nature of, of our freedom and the way that we conceive ourselves in the world. This is what he wrote. If you want the citation for this afterwards, please just come grab me or email me. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and another mystery of human life. Let me read that one more time. It's in the notes that you have next to you. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, on one hand, yes, we would all agree we are thankful to live in a country where we, we do have that freedom. We can choose to worship our own God. Uh, we are not compelled by the state to deny that God exists, um, maybe like other people are in other places in the world. But isn't there a sense in which that statement is what all of us think, just naturally? And, and doesn't that make sense? I mean, to go back to what Dawkins was talking about, we saw last week, if there is no God and there is no objective purpose or meaning to life, it would make sense that all of us have the freedom to determine that about ourselves. But here's the thing. If God is real, and if the scriptures aren't lying to us, if, if what we see him doing in the world is embarking on this journey throughout the course of human history, the Old Testament, into the New Testament, into to your life, into my life, including here in Birmingham in 2022, if he is on the move in order to engage people from every tribe and tongue, and if you're a Christian here, that has, again, included us, what that means is now... We don't get the right to define ourselves. And life's not ultimately about us, is it? Which is both the worst news that we've ever heard and is it the best news that we've ever heard, isn't it? We talked about that last week. If life is not all about us, we don't have to, to prove ourselves. We don't have to struggle for significance. We know who we are. We've been told if our identity's in Christ, we are the beloved. God is pleased with us. And we go about life Totally different. So, so again, when you look, when you're brushing your teeth tonight and you're looking in the mirror, you don't see a man or a woman, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who is having to wake up every day trying to answer the question of who am I? Or going on social media and asking everyone else to answer the question for them, who am I? Tell me who I am. We know who we are. We're a part of the nations that God's called to himself. It changes everything about how we understand ourselves. And it changes life in this way. Not only are we recipients of that, but as we're going to talk about next week, as Andrew's going to guide us in looking at Jesus in these great commission passages, he invites us 
and the great mystery and economy of God to play a role in that work amongst the nations. I hope you'll join us then. Let's pray. God, thank you that you've given us this vision of what you're doing in all the world, gathering a people unto you, that we would be able to, to gather around you and worship you, that that's what we were made for. It's where we are going. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us further, and, and especially um, in the weeks to come, that you would continue to, to give us a sense of where we've come from and where you're wanting us to go and, and how you're wanting us to play a part. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.